I'm staying today. The episode's dropping on Mondays. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that. It's the man, it's the man, watch that podcast. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, there was an informal poll on Twitter this week, and I apologize for not getting the name of the person who posted it, about if you were in a horror movie and could only choose one person to have your back to survive, who would you pick? The choices were Black Widow, Alice from Resident Evil, Sarah Connor, and Ellen Ripley. The smartest choice is probably Black Widow. She's been trained as a spy, knows martial arts, skilled with weaponry. But I'm disqualifying her from this discussion because she's been enhanced by biotechnology. It's like comparing baseball players who use steroids versus those who were clean. Alice, I can't really speak to because I've never seen the Resident Evil movies. Alphonse, Alphonse, put those on the list. Now, while I'm a fan of the Terminator movies, and I'm only counting the first two because they severely messed up the timeline, Sarah Connor was a bit of a pushover in the original. She had to learn how to become the badass she was in T2, whereas Ellen Ripley was always a badass. In Alien, she's a warrant officer, third in command on the Nostromo. She convincingly stood up to Dallas, Parker, and Ash. If they listened to her from the beginning and followed quarantine protocols, the crew would have survived. Well, except for Kane. He was done for. Without any real weaponry, she was able to dispose of the alien. In Aliens, she became accomplished at using a power loader, learned how to shoot an M41A pulse rifle, exposed a double crosser, emerged as the leader of a group of marines, eliminated the alien queen and her offspring, and was a surrogate mother. She's a survivor, she's adaptable, she's a cat person, she's got my vote. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is skip it, two stars watch at your own risk, three stars standard fare, four stars worth checking out, and five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie. Steel Magnolias, from 1989, about a group of women in a small Louisiana neighborhood who support each other through life-changing events. It was directed by Herbert Ross, who helmed Funny Girl, The Goodbye Girl, Footloose, and was nominated for a Best Director Academy Award for The Turning Point. The screenplay was written by Robert Harling, based on his play. He scribed Soap Dish, The First Wives Club, and the sequel to Terms of Endearment, The Evening Star, which he directed as well. Now, there are multiple storylines in Steel Magnolias, so I think it's easiest to break up the narrative by characters. 
We're introduced to Malin Eatonton, who's checking on the final preparations for her daughter's wedding reception. Her daughter, Shelby, is getting ready for the event. She is thrilled with the idea of growing old with someone, sitting on the porch together, kids and grandkids all around. Her fiancé is a lawyer who makes good money. Her parents want her to quit her job as a nurse after she's married, so she won't be on her feet all day long. You see, she has diabetes and they worry about her health. The doctors had already told her that her chances of having children with her condition is near impossible. The parents are portrayed by two-time Oscar winner Sally Field of Forrest Gump and Mrs. Doubtfire fame, and primetime Emmy winner Tom Skerritt from MASH and Alien. Oscar winner Julia Roberts plays Shelby. This was a year before her breakthrough in Pretty Woman and her box office dominance in the 90s. Dylan McDermott from The Practice and In the Line of Fire has a role as her fiancé-slash-husband. Malin and Shelby take a trip to a salon owned by Truvy Jones, an outgoing, quick-witted beautician. Despite this, she feels unfulfilled by her inattentive husband. The last time he did something nice for her was when he converted the carport into her business. She's portrayed by Dolly Parton, legendary singer-songwriter musician who wrote hits I Will Always Love You and Jolene, and acted in 9 to 5, Rhinestone, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. She's taken on a new employee, Anel Dupuy de Soto, who has just arrived in town. She's shy and insecure, clumsy, introverted. We find out her husband is on the run from the law and she's trying to start anew. She's played by Daryl Hannah, who's appeared in Splash, Roxanne, and Legal Eagles. I know this movie didn't start the trend, but whenever Hollywood wants to make a pretty actress more homely, they always give her frizzy hair and glasses. That's the go-to. It might be easier to put a sign on her that says, she's supposed to look bland. The group of ladies are rounded out by Clary Belcher, a former first lady whose husband just passed, and apparently her best friend and confidant, Weezer Bordeaux, the neighborhood busybody who's never happy and can't control her dog. I say apparently because no one seems to like her. They never say a nice word about her, yet she's part of their clique. The characters are played by Oscar winners Olympia Dukakis, who was in Moonstruck, Look Who's Talking, and cousin of presidential candidate Michael Dukakis, and Shirley MacLaine, known for Terms of Endearment, The Apartment, and sister of Warren Beatty. Over the course of the movie, the women's lives change slightly, but the constant is that they're always there for each other, through holidays, marriages, pregnancies, and marital stress. Here's the thing. I wanted to like this movie so much more than I did, because it has some of the finest actresses of the time, so how can you go wrong? Here's how. You can have a paper-thin plot stuck together with some spit and chewing gum. There wasn't enough material for the actors to work with. While the storyline following Malin and Shelby seems to be the main narrative, none of the characters are given enough of a substantial arc. With Anel, a little time passes and she suddenly has a makeover, looking like a mini Truvy with personality to spare. Then more time passes and she's back to her shy, insecure self. They try to explain it away with a line or two, but films are a visual medium. Don't tell me. Show me. That's where the drama is. They could have made separate storylines for each character and it would have felt more complete and satisfying. And the men... The men play an insignificant role in the movie, which is a shame only because there are some talented actors. Tom Skerritt, Sam Shepard, Dylan McDermott, Kevin J. O'Connor. But that feels like a theme of this film, underutilizing talent. That's not to say it didn't have its bright spots. Watching this much talent on screen is a joy, especially during the more comedic moments of the film, where they're throwing quips and expressions at each other. 
All the characters are likable except for Weezer. Performance is strong. They all had some kind of southern drawl. I'm sure people from Louisiana had problems with the accents, but being a northerner, anything with a slight twang is considered southern to me. But like the accents, the movie was uneven. I can see it coming off much better as a play. Despite being engaged and entertained, I don't think it reached the potential it could have with this cast. It might be unfair to hold that against the film, but it's my podcast. The cinematography was captured by John A. Alonzo, whose filmography includes Chinatown, The Magnificent Seven, and The Bad News Bears. The movie was filmed on location in Louisiana. As I mentioned previously, I like seeing different regions on screen. There were beautiful shots of flowers and trees that I don't normally see in my area. It was edited by Paul Hirsch, who's known for Star Wars, A New Hope, and The Empire Strikes Back, and has worked on 11 Brian De Palma films and 4 Herbert Ross films. The score was composed by Georges Delarue, who wrote the music for Platoon, Beaches, Silkwood, and won an Academy Award for Best Music, Original Score, for A Little Romance. There wasn't much of a soundtrack to the film, and any modern music that appeared was part of a scene. During the wedding reception, there were covers of old-time rock and roll and jambalaya, performed by Tommy Funderbuck, which sounds like a Danish pastry. Oh, that Funderbuck was fabulous, very light and airy. I have to take a few points off for casting Dolly Parton and not having her sing. There was a wedding, 4th of July celebration, Easter egg hunt, and Christmas festival. She couldn't whip out a verse of Oh Holy Night. The runtime is 1 hour 58 minutes. It had a budget of $15 million and grossed $97 million at the box office. It was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Julia Roberts at the 62nd Academy Awards. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Get the Let Out, Glamour Technician, Blush and Bashful, Calories Calories, Can of Worms, Track Lighting, Tale of Two Kidneys, and Brown Football Helmet. I have to give it 3 out of 5 stars. Add half a star if you like a bit of schmaltz. If you've seen Steel Magnolias and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. There's something about the golden age of Hollywood. Maybe it was the way they spoke, or that they got dressed up for dinner. It could be the black and white film that made everyone look flawless. It all seems like a completely different time, but it was only about 80-90 years ago. That's a blink of an eye in the vast scheme of things. When you think about actors from the 30s, 40s, 50s, there's a particular image of them because everything was so guarded back then. Not only were actors contracted to specific studios, which controlled every aspect of their lives, but there were PR departments that protected their image at all costs. There were just as many, if not more, scandals as there are today, but many slipped under the radar. Recently, studios have been opening up their archives and releasing footage online of their actors and actresses in not-so-perfect moments. This week, I'm going to post classic film bloopers from some of your favorite actors from the golden age of Hollywood, including Jimmy Stewart, Betty Davis, Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland. I never realized how funny Bogey was until I saw a few of his gaffes. Why wasn't he in more comedies? It's also interesting hearing actors from that era speaking in old-timey vernacular and suddenly breaking character and dropping a curse in a normal tone. Oh, what a ghastly thing to say. I've been... Son of a bitch. Whoopsie! 
I knew it was all an act. And apparently the word nuts was a popular exclamation. I think I'm going to try and bring that one back. It might break their mystique a little bit, but I enjoyed seeing these outtakes from stars of the past. These classic film bloopers are available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Inside the Actor's Studio. It was created and hosted by James Lipton, dean at the Actors Studio Drama School at Pace University. He would invite actors, directors, writers, or casts to be interviewed about their upbringing, inspirations, preparation, and craft. He was known for his extensive research and stack of blue index cards, which would whittle down as the interview went on. The conversations would last a few hours and edited to one-hour episodes. There were many memorable moments, including Robin Williams' rapid-fire humor, Dave Chappelle talking about fame and walking away from his series, and Jack Lemmon revealing publicly that he's an alcoholic. The audience would be filled with students in the drama, writing, and filmmaking programs. One episode in 1999 featured a young actor named Bradley Cooper asking a question to guest Sean Penn. Twelve years later, he would be on stage being interviewed. Each episode ended with a questionnaire inspired by Bernard Pivot. Since I'm never going to be invited on the show, I'm going to ask myself these questions. What is your favorite word? Phantasmagorical. Thank you to Daffy Duck. What is your least favorite word? Cancel. As in my favorite series or as in culture. What turns you on? Creativity. What turns you off? Negativity. What sound or noise do you love? Nature. Birds chirping, waterfalls, thunderstorms, the wind. What sound or noise do you hate? Filing nails. Like on an emery board? Oof. Up and down my spine. What is your favorite curse word? Out of the standard curses? Whoopsie! What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Zoologist or marine biologist? Really anything involving wild animals? What profession would you not like to do? Roadkill removal. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Your table is ready. During his career, James Lipton had been parodied by Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live, appeared on The Simpsons and Family Guy, and acted in Arrested Development. He won a Primetime Emmy Award in 2013 for Outstanding Informational Series or Special. He retired in 2018 and passed away from cancer two years later. He will go down as one of the best interviewers on television. Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton was on for 22 seasons, 269 episodes, from 1994 to 2018. A new iteration with rotating hosts currently airs on Ovation. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need those listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, good night, good night. Each review will each review will end with a ri- each review will okay, let's stop. <laughs>
I went off the rails real quick. One episode in 1999 featured a young actor named Bradley Cooper asking a question to the guest shit. What am I saying? And primetime Emmy winner Tom Skerritt from MASH and Nail and Nalians. That's the porn version of it. <laughs> the go-to joke.